It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hi, and welcome to the show. This is part two of my conversation with Mark Roberge, Chief Revenue Officer of HubSpot Sales and best-selling author of the book, The Sales Acceleration Formula. Now, if you missed our first conversation, we talked about the first two parts of a sales acceleration formula, sales hiring and onboarding and training reps, and this time we're going to talk about the second two elements of his onboarding formula, and, or excuse me, of his sales acceleration formula. Mark, how you doing? Great. Great to be back, Andy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> good, good. So let's get into demand generation. Because I'm really interested because you guys grew so rapidly. I mean, how did that evolve for you and how did that affect your formula? Is you, I mean, were you consistent with that formula from the time you first started? Because you were, what, employee number three, right, at HubSpot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, roughly before, yeah. Yeah, until when you got to $100 million. I mean, did you have that same idea in mind or how did things change for you? Yeah, from a demand generation perspective, it changed quite a bit. And I, I think this is one area that I see, especially if you get into like the uh, you know, rapid growth, venture-backed company arena. This is an area where I think a lot of them miss out, um, where, you know, you're sitting there and you're, you've got product market fit and you've got a dozen people at your company and you've got two or three salespeople and they're just crushing their numbers and you raise $10 million and you set these goals to hire 20 salespeople next year and you're off and running. And what they failed to, fail to do is look under the covers and evaluate how those two or three salespeople were actually hitting their number. And when you do that, you find out that, you know, 40% of the deals they were closing were referrals from the CEO and, <laughs> and their buyers, right, right? Right, Yeah, hand-picked and, deals. And, you know, the, uh, the other 60% came from these externally hot, like, inbound referrals or leads that were coming in through, um, you know, the, the small amount of website traffic, but, you know, you know, dabble, you know, the dribble that they actually have that's yielding opportunities. Yeah, the classic the innovators fact, on the on the curve, right? Yeah, exactly. And when they when you add the twenty salespeople, obviously the referrals from the CEO don't scale, and and you haven't you haven't figured out how to scale the the qualified inbound leads across that large of a, a group. And what happens is you end up producing the same amount of revenue with you know six times the salespeople, right? right? Because you haven't figured out that that formula. So. That's something I think a lot of organizations fail to look at as they're looking to scale. Um, now, the one area where I think they they um, they undervalue is just you know inbound is all the the talk these days, and I think a lot of people understand that um, you know cold calls is less effective, and trade shows is you know a lot of consultants and not a lot of buyers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the the modern buyer and consumer has gotten pretty sophisticated on advertising and, and they're trained their eyeballs to ignore it. So there's just a, you know, they recognize that um, there there's uh, challenges there in getting people to find you. However, for whatever reason, when you start and go out and survey these people and think about, well, how much are you spending on advertising and how much do you spend on cold calling? And let's compare that to how much you spend on blogging and SEO and social media there's still a pretty big gap there. Mm-hmm. Right? So 
for whatever reason, when people recognize this stuff, especially when they look at this problem from the lens of a buyer, they get it, but they, they fail to act from an investment and strategic standpoint. And I think they just don't know what to do, right? So, so what, when I kind of look at this issue for organizations, the, the thing I try to think about or, or set into their heads is as an executive team, your job is not to step up and start blogging and start generating content and start participating in social media. If you have time, great. Your job is to put in place the process and resources to get that done, right? And mm-hmm. many folks are surprised to hear that when we were 10 people in a garage and we hired our second marketer, that that marketer was a journalist from the New York Times. That's who we hired. And, and that's kind of the mindset that you need to have is you need to think about betting hard in your marketing and demand generation group with a journalistic um, you know, resource. And that could be, if you're a small company, it could be going over to NYU or Columbia if you're down in New York and finding a junior that's studying uh, journalism and have them come by every Friday. Or it could be, you know, if you want to bet harder, and I encourage you to do, go find some, I mean, the newspaper and magazine industry is not on fire right now. No, there's it's lots of people available for work. Extraordinarily gifted people. Yes. Right, who, who do not realize that they hold the keys to the future of demand gen for sales teams, right? And so if you can, if you can kind of come to that insight yourself and go seek those people out, and they're hard, to, you know, it's hard to find the right person. And you, you don't have to obsess over them having domain knowledge, but you know, find a, a good journalist can sit down with a PhD in nanotechnology and interview them for an hour and write a beautiful piece, having known nothing about nanotechnology. I mean, you, you can right. relate to this yourself. Right. And, right. You're set. and so that's really what you're looking for. And then your job as an executive is to surround them with the domain knowledge within your company, right? So the whole C-suite should be on this thought leadership committee. Your sales team should be on your thought leadership committee. Your engineers, if you sell a, a technical product, should be on your thought leadership committee. And once a week, one of them should sit down with this journalist and do an hour interview and have that journalist create an ebook, create four blog posts, create a couple dozen social media messages from that one hour interview. And that, that process there starts to build up your demand generation formula and allows you to scale. That's interesting because you think that, oh no, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I talked to a lot of companies that are thinking about, okay, how do we start getting into this business content generation, content marketing and yeah, they start saying, gosh, we need to have lots of people involved with this, as opposed to one person who's, as in the early stages at least, one person who has the skills to be able to cre- actually create the content who can then interview the experts with that domain knowledge within your company. Yeah, and that's the hardest part, right, is actually doing the work of you know, turning this content into something that's consumable and interesting by the reader. And I think that's where they get caught up is the CEO feels like it needs to come from her you know, or, yeah. him, you know, and they don't have time for that. Or they're like, our strategy is we're going to get our, we told every salesperson they need to write a blog article a month. You know what I mean? Or <laughs> they have, have, have a salesperson show up to a 30 minute cup of coffee with a journalist. That's going to work. Right. Yeah. Or they might completely outsource the writing process to people that don't do the sufficient, you know, sufficiently in depth interview. And then you get really compromised qual- uh, content. Yeah, and that would have worked. That's an interesting shift that's happened, I think, in the last five or ten years. Is honestly, five years ago, we ran some studies on this, and quality—I mean, quantity—probably probably out-trumped quality. You know, it was just 
it was just such a wide open space that as long as you were just writing something, you were picking up traffic, mm-hmm. convert it. But now, you know, that's been the big shift is you have to, you have to balance quality and quantity more precisely. You can't just go out and start looking for long tail keywords and, and writing, you know, blanketed blog articles about it. You have to have something meaningful to say. Well, let's look at what it did for you guys relative to results. I mean, how much or what percentage of your leads were you generating from content marketing, from inbound? Even, you know, you are the inbound company. Yeah. I mean, you were running the sales team. I mean, what was that percentage mix between proactively developed leads versus inbound leads? Yeah, I mean, in the early days, it was 100% for the first few years. I mean, I had a huge advantage in the early years from that. Um, that demand. 100% inbound. Uh, 100%. I mean, I was just, it it took me three years to catch up with the size of the sales team to service all the inbound leads that we had. Um, I think we probably got to three dozen salespeople. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and then at some, you know, at some point, and we hit it much later than I think most organizations, but at some point, especially when you're high growth and trying to double revenue every year, um, you just can't keep up with that on the content side and you need to diversify a bit. Um, so we developed a really great partner program um, that was also able to leverage the inbound demand, but created uh, a different um, you know, channel for us to, to be able to go to market through. Mm-hmm. And then we did have to proactively go out and, and target accounts. But it was fortunate that by the time we had to do that, um, in a lot of cases, it still felt like an inbound warm call because the HubSpot brand had, you know, gotten so much awareness at that point that it was rare to get on the phone with someone that hadn't heard of us. And, and right. that would have been very different, obviously, back in 07 and 08 when we were starting out. Right. So you're aware of, you know, some people that in this business, the sales business, if you will, that write about, you know, shunning inbound. The only good lead is one lead I developed myself. And then other people say on the other extreme saying cold calls completely dead. It's really in the middle somewhere, right? In my take, I mean, uh, you know, there's a, there's, if, if I'm on my podium representing HubSpot, then you, you got to take the more aggressive stance to change the market. But if I were sitting here as sort of a, a just a trusted advisor or a consultant to uh, an everyday organization, I think it is somewhere in between. I mean, I, my stance would be, I would be willing to bet that 99% of the companies I'm speaking to are significantly underinvesting in their demand generation tactics around inbound just because mm-hmm. it's new and hard and all the stuff we just talked about and tactics and what you could do. But at the same time, it's rare to be able to think that you're going to be able to meet your revenue growth projections just from the inbound demand that you'll generate, even if you're doing it right and aggressing, you know, investing heavily. Right. And if you complement it with, you know, some outbound tactics and recognize that your brand is going to significantly benefit from your inbound as well, such that those outbound tactics feel a little bit more warmer and more aligned with the modern buyer, um, then, you know, you'll be better off. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a blog post last year for the HubSpot blog, as a matter of fact, uh, where I talk about this concept of a lead deficit, which I talked about in my, my latest book, mm. which was... Yeah, I mean, calculate. You can calculate the number of leads that you're going to need to develop proactively based on the number of leads you're getting from your your content marketing, your inbound program. Exactly. And so it's in an ideal world. Ideal world, it'd be great to get all your leads as you had your first few years coming from your inbound activities. 
But as you said, realistically, you reach a point where maybe you just can't. Either you're under-investing, as you talk about, or you reach a scale where you just can't fill it exclusively through inbound. So at that point, you have to do what you have to do to get the number of leads you need in your pipeline, which means you have to go to proactive. Beautiful, right. I mean, that's that really is a demand generation formula. You need to figure that out in advance of scale. Exactly. And I think the other thing you've got to recognize is typically there's a different funnel shape with those two sources, mm-hmm. right? Typically, um, the inbound leads have a higher close rate, have a shorter sales cycle um, versus the outbound leads. So you just have to appreciate that as you look ahead to scale. And if you're like, okay, well, we need to add 20 reps next year. And as we model this out, we recognize that today, 60% of our new customer acquisition comes from inbound leads and 40% comes from outbound generated leads. And as we scale at the pace we expect to next year and making a conservative assumption that we'll grow our inbound funnel by say 5% a month, Mm -hmm. then where we'll end up at the end of the year is we'll actually be more like 60% outbound acquired customers and 40% inbound. And you just need to make sure that you've accounted for that change in the productivity of your reps and the economics of your business. It's not bad. You just have to look ahead and make sure you've planned for that. Right. Well, I think, again, the mix is really critical to understand. And for people listening to the show, follow Mark's advice, do the math. You can figure it out (laughs) where you need to be and where you were going to be, most importantly, where you're going to be based on a certain growth rate and plan accordingly. Exactly. Excellent. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after the break with our guest, Mark Robert, to talk further about his sales acceleration formula. Attention, sales leaders. Would you like to give your sales team the tools to drive more quality connects, scale their outreach, and spend more time selling? Well, you can with LiveHive. Get your ROI. Try it now at livehive.com forward slash ROI. That's LiveHive, L-I-V-E-H-I-V-E dot com forward slash R-O-I. Hi, welcome back to the show. Today, we've got Mark Roberge, part two of our conversation about the sales acceleration formula. We're just talking about lead generation, inbound, outbound, proactive prospecting. What's the ideal mix that you get into if there is such an ideal mix that exists? Um, one last point on sort of that. So a lot of the software as a service companies that are trying to scale very quickly seem like they encounter some of this, these scaling problems, right, in terms of balancing the right mix of, of inbound versus outbound? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think they just underinvest and, uh, in the inbound tactics because they don't know what to do to scale it. And I think that they fail to project out, you know, how that mix is going to change as they scale the team more rapidly than the inbound demand gen is actually evolving. And that mm-hmm. can have a pretty big impact on the company, the productivity of the reps, um, the, the culture, <laughs> the customer success. It just it can unwind quickly if you don't look ahead and plan for that. And as you said early on in the conversation, this, this part of the conversation was that if you underinvest in your inbound, then necessarily you probably end up overinvesting in your outbound. Sort of ironically, right? I mean, you're going to have more people than you have the ability to scale quickly. And so the productivity per rep is going to go down. To make up for it, yep. absolutely. And, yeah. and even for folks who got, you know, there's, it gets complicated because then, then I've had plenty of companies that I've worked with where they, they 
took the advice and they properly modeled things and they said, we've got to get the outbound going a little faster. And But then they failed to recognize that, wow, now all of a sudden you've got 25 BDRs or SDRs running around the office and you need office space for them and you need desks and you need management and you, you know. And Do- just, you need dialers, you need everything else. You have to account for there. And right. you know, as long as you're smart about it, it'll work, but there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, and a lot, as you talk about, a lot of pressure, especially in the venture-funded environment to scale at a scale within a very short period of time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, did you guys have those same pressures from your investors in terms of how quickly you were scaling? Oh yeah. You know, I mean, I think if, if we switch gears to more of an entrepreneurial lens these days, like, you know, when you're in the early stages, um, and you're going the venture route, you're, you know, you're going to go through probably a couple rounds before you can actually pull something together that's going to be break even, you know, especially in the world of, of SaaS where it's a little harder to manage cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and the game really is about, you know, raising that capital and then buying yourself enough runway to, you know, get to that next story that will raise capital. You know what I mean? That's really the way you look at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You raise the series A and, you know, let's envision a world 12, 18 months ago to, from now that we want to raise our series B. What does that pitch deck look like? What do we need? How far do we need to grow it? Where, where do we need to be where every VC in the world will want to be part of our round and we'll get a ridiculous valuation and let's go out and hit it. And, you know, the stakes are large. You know, if you go and hit it, it's great. You got great momentum. You get a good round from the best VCs in the world. And if you completely miss it, you may go under. Or you may have to do a down round, in which case, like, you become a walking zombie as a startup, right? So <laughs> exactly. It kind of, you know, that becomes the game when you go down that route, whether good or bad. Right. So you're somebody that you talked about in our first part of our conversation is that you were pretty inexperienced when you started this this whole thing with HubSpot. Almost no sales experience to speak of, yet extremely analytical, very process driven. You knew pretty precisely what it is you want to do in terms of scaling revenue. Just sort of a personal question, as you're raising this money and you are scaling, how often did the venture investors say, maybe we need somebody else to lead sales? Often. <laughs> <laughs> in the early days, you know what I mean? There was, uh, it, it's, of course they did. You know what I mean? Like They liked me and they, they were impressed, but you know they're throwing millions of dollars at this thing. They, they don't want to fool around. Right. And... Um, you know, our our CEO protected me to some degree and, and said, let me give it a shot. And, you know, to be honest, he had he, he was keeping a close eye, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I often say is um, the best thing about sales is, you know, it's very quantifiable as to whether you're succeeding. Uh, and the worst thing about sales is it's very quantifiable as whether yep. you're failing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I recognized that and I knew those perceptions were there. And I, I went out and didn't miss a number for the first 37 months on the seat. And I think that, you know, by the time you do that, you know, and you've gone from whatever the numbers were at that time, zero to 25 or 30 million, you've started to build up a little credibility mm-hmm. with, with, the, with folks. And, and you've got more people in your camp and, and uh, there, there's some respect there. So that was really it. I mean, hey, if I was if that first year went by and, and, and I missed you know, 20, 25% of my numbers, I don't think I would have had the opportunity to keep going. 
Well, yeah. Another thing too with the venture investors is, you know, they say, okay, we've got a guy, he's a good zero to 25 guy, right? And then there's another guy who's good up to 50 to 100. And then we needed somebody else that's better from 100 plus. You were able to scale all that successfully. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was funny that the uh, one of the board members pointed that out and said, you know, you might actually do it. You know, I think we were at like, we're at like 95 million at the time or something. Like, they're always skeptical, you know, right. even to the last dollar. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was fortunate. And that that was uh, that was kind of a lesson in, in itself. It was a fun ride to do that. Um and it was, for me, I think I always sort of had a little bit of, like many entrepreneurs, a little bit of professional ADD, mm-hmm. where, you know, like once you, you're always, you're really driven by figuring something out. And once you figure it out, it can become boring fast. Right. And uh, that was one thing that was real cool about the experience for me personally was that's almost, a, that's a huge advantage, right? If, if, if you're scaling that quickly and you're in the head of sales seat, if you're doing the same thing day to day that you were doing nine to 12 months earlier, you're going to fail. Like as part of that journey, you have to be constantly redefining your role um, to align itself with the new spectrum of scale that you're in. Absolutely. That's a good lesson for entrepreneurs and small business owners that are listening to the show is just that lesson is that if you're trying to do things the same, you're falling behind. Completely. Yeah. You always have to be, you know, if you, if you're serious about, I mean, if you're running a lifestyle business, Great. It's perfect. But if you're serious about growth, you need to be redefining your role every nine to 12 months to align yourself with those, that, that mission. Well, I'd argue, even argue in a lifestyle business, you have that same imperative. I mean, I've had clients in the past where, you know, the owner of the business is sort of glad to get his distribution check at the end of the year. But, you know, he wasn't thinking at all about how do I continue to evolve and move forward and grow. And suddenly that distribution check started getting smaller. Exactly. Because exactly. it, invariably it will. So exactly. Let's talk about metrics then. So sort of the last part of the equation. What were the metrics that were sort of the key drivers for you as you were in the early stages of growing the company and how did they evolve? Yeah, so I get asked that a lot. Like, hey, what are the key metrics we should be focused on? And I think it, you know, it starts with just having a basic measurement. And it sounds really obvious, but so few organizations get to an accurate basic measurement. I would say like four or five steps of you know, how many leads are you sourcing a month and how many do you reach out to and how many do you connect with and how many move to the discovery call and demo and close. Like some, some function of, of there, just keep it really high level and be disciplined about measuring that, measuring it by salesperson, measuring it by month. Um, and if you can, defining the stages between those metrics is relatively factual and inspectable, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's like, you have confidence that when one moved from one stage to the next, that it actually happened. Right. Um, and, it, you know, driven by buyer behavior as opposed to like a salesperson actually just saying, yeah, I, I did that. I checked that box. <laughs> and so, if, you know, it takes a lot of work just to get to that simple place. And once you do that, uh, you've set yourself up for a really strong context because now what you can do is, um, you know, set yourself up for better forecasting and projections first off, uh, better visibility in your pipeline. But most importantly, something that's overlooked is a foundation from which to coach on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the different, you know, I I really try to lean into our managers to be strong coaches. That's like the, 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 the biggest, the most important thing I want them to be doing. I happen to believe that 
that's the most effective way to drive sales productivity is an effective coaching model. Mm-hmm. And that the kind of underlying aspect there I see is that a lot of managers try to work on too many things at once with their sales team and their sales people. And, you know, it's because some of them came from the funnel and they were successful and they see this huge gap between where a new salesperson is and where they want to be. And they just like throw up on them for an hour with like, you know, 90 pieces of feedback and you can just see the salesperson's head spinning. And instead, what I try to get them to do is try to diagnose specifically where they're the most broken that would, if you could solve that, it will have the biggest impact and hone in your coaching on that. And, and if you can lean on the metrics for you to do that diagnosis, as opposed to your gut or as opposed to like a single call observation, mm-hmm. it's going to be a more powerful way to have confidence behind your diagnosis and, um, and customize a coaching plan that will have an impact on that salesperson's life. Right. And I call that metrics driven sales coaching. And so what I'd essentially do is I personally, you know, when I, you know, let's say a couple of years in, I had like four managers and well, a couple of directors, a bunch of managers, like you know, hundred reps or whatever. I would meet on the second afternoon of every month and say, okay, I go through with each director, every single one of their salespeople under them. What is the thing you're working on uh, with that salesperson? Mm-hmm. How'd you come up with that? And how do you intend to coach them through that issue? And because I would hold that meeting, and it was probably about 60 to 90 minutes with each director, they would have that same discussion with each of their managers that morning. And because those discussions were happening on the first day of the month, each manager would sit down in a one-on-one with each salesperson and go through their metrics. They would go through every step of the funnel and how they compare to the rest of the team. They would go through every step of the funnel and how they are progressing themselves. How are they improving from two months, three months, four months earlier? And from that discussion, they would talk about like, what is the one area they want to work on and how, as your manager, can I help you with that? And, and that cadence that was easy, easy to hold the organization accountable to made sure that we had coaching at the forefront of our mind. And, and, the managers would walk out of that conversation saying, okay, Andy, you said that you want to work on building sense of urgency with your prospects during the discovery process. Then let's do two discovery film reviews this month, one-on-one, you mm-hmm. and I. And I want you to show up with a, a recording of you and a prospect doing a discovery call, and we'll review them. So it looks like we're both available on Friday at 10 a.m., and it looks like we're both available the following Thursday at 4 p.m. Let's put those in our calendar right now. Show up with the recordings, and we'll walk through that. And and that that you know made sure it's so easy as a manager and as a sales leader to just be constantly fighting fighting fires and not be proactive about coaching. Um, but this particular cadence made sure that you know we always had it at the forefront of our mind. Well, I think the great thing that what you talk about is is the consistency, right? I mean, that the, you've got, a as you said, the cadence that flowed down from you to the directors, to the managers, to the salespeople. It was on a regularly scheduled basis. They were focused, as you said, on a very limited number of, of items that they were coaching, maybe just one. That they were coaching with a, a rep at a time. As then you can start seeing, as they, yeah, you can start replicating this across a broader organization, which is, 
you know, one of the problems I see oftentimes in organizations is just they may be well-intended, but the managers aren't coaching people the same way or one may be doing skills-based and one's just doing, you know, opportunity-based coaching and people aren't progressing in the same the same fashion they should. Exactly. And that became a big piece of the director and sales leaders roles where, you know, if, if you were one of the managers, Andy, and you were t- and your director was having this discussion with you and, and you're like, you know, I'm really struggling with Paul, you know, Paul, he's, he's a, he works really hard, but you know what? He just, he won't shut up on the calls. You know, he won't just let the prospect talk and listen to them. And, and your director can say, you know what, Andy, you should go talk to Sarah. Sarah's one of the managers over on this other team. She just had that same issue with Jesse three months ago. And Jesse's crushing it now. So why don't you have a cup of coffee with, with Sarah and see what she did from a coaching standpoint to help Jesse overcome that issue. And maybe you should even get Jesse and, and Paul together because maybe Jesse from peer-to-peer standpoint would be able to get through to Paul a little bit more effectively. So that, that became a big part, of, you know, a big advantage from the cadence was you start to see those consistencies pretty quickly. And also, I think one of the key things you, you put together there, which is a really, again, another really important lesson for everybody, is that it's about the person, right? It's not about just their activity level, right? Because if you're just managing to this activity, and we see this all the time in the literature and you see it in books people write, is you know, sales managers are so focused on the minutia of certain activity levels that they forget about the people and they forget about the outcomes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's for some reason that's the default is to just over manage to the activity. And what I like to do is I manage to the results and I leverage the activity as a um, sort of a, an, a foreshadowing of what's to come. Exactly. Right? So, you know, like, listen, if I stop by your desk and you're on your fantasy football, you know, league site, <laughs> I'm not going to tear you a new one. FanDuel. Like, especially. Especially if you've been, you know, at your quota the last couple months. I mean, I get it. That's the middle of the day and you need a break, you know, and I don't know if you're staying until eight o'clock to do your calls that day. And I'm never going to say like, hey, you can't leave the office to do 100 dials. I mean, I've I've seen cultures that are like that. You know what to do? The, the reps pass around 1-800 numbers that they can call just to get their call numbers up. You exactly. know what I mean? That's, that's the type of behavior that you end up solving for. But instead, it's just like, you know, I solve for the results. It's very, it's very obvious if you're doing well. It's very obvious if you're not doing well from a revenue and customer success standpoint. And then I'll take a look at your, at your activity, you know. And, and if you've, hit your, if you've hit, crushed your goal the last four months, but your activity is a little low, I'll say, oh, you're doing great, Andy. Congratulations on your success. Let's talk about some of the things that you're doing really well so I can learn from it and apply it to the rest of the team. And, oh, by the way, just a little red flag on your activity. You know, like I've seen this before. I'm a little concerned. You know, when I have seen this, I this is usually a foreshadowing that you're going to struggle next quarter. Um, but I just want to highlight that. You know, yeah. so I'm not going to let you get away with it completely. I'm going to express concern, but I'm patting you on the back and saying, "Good job. I'm managing to the results." Excellent. I love it. Well, good. Well, we're going to finish up with a last segment of the show where I ask you some rapid fire questions. You're going to give me some either one word answer or you can elaborate if you wish. And uh, we'll see what we get through. You ready? Great. So what's the most powerful sales tool in your personal arsenal? Um, Sidekick. See when people open your email. Okay. What's the one tool you use for sales management that you can't live without? Um, 
I would say, however you go about recording your calls, there's a bunch of ways to do that. It's right. so critical from a coaching standpoint. Okay. Who's your sales role model? Hmm. My doctor. <laughs> I just think that's, I think at the end of the day, doctors are kind of salespeople and they, they know everything about you and they prescribe, you know, ways to solve your problems and as, as salespeople, that's what we need to aspire to. Yeah. I love it. That's first time I've heard that answer. <laughs> What's the one book every salesperson should read? Sales or non-sales? Yeah. I don't know. I, I'd have to go... I'd have to go extremely old school and just like throw out like a spin selling just to establish a foundation. Sure. You know, I think everything builds off of that, but that's where I think the, the foundation needs to be established. Okay. Here's a really tough question. So what's favorite music to listen to in advance to psych yourself up for like an important meeting or important sales call? ACDC. Wow, they're, they're top of the list. They continue to be top of the list. It's amazing. <laughs> you can't buy their stuff on Spotify. The only way I can listen to them without going, maybe there's another way without buying their, you know, uh, their CD and like burn it into my computer is, right. is to put them on as a channel on Pandora and hope that they come up. <laughs> <laughs> I swear. Over the interviews we've done so far, of which we're probably 60 or 70 interviews into the process now, ACDC, far and away in the lead. Yeah. Uh, what's the one last question here? So what's the one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople? Um, how do you overcome sense of urgency? How do you get a prospect to move quicker than you, they, they want to? And the answer is? You got to dig into why they should from their standpoint. It's not about you making quota by the end of the quarter. It's about understanding the implications of them not moving on. And like one key question I like to ask, which requires a tremendous amount of trust developed between you and the prospect is, Andy, I really appreciate all the time you spent with me understanding your needs and walking through our solution. But I have one question for you. God forbid it's six months from now and you haven't addressed this problem. It doesn't really sound like the world falls apart for you. Is that right? And if they push back and say, no, it does, and give you some reasons, <laughs> then you have urgency. And if you don't, um, if they don't, then you got to go dig somewhere else to find it. Yeah. Oh, great. Great answer to that question. I love it. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. My guest has been Mark Roberge, VP and Chief Revenue Officer of HubSpot Sales and author of the best-selling sales book, The Sales Acceleration Formula. So, Mark, if people wanted to get in contact with you, contact with you, how would they do that? I'm active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just shoot me a note or uh, at Mark Roberge. Uh, you can find me there. All right. Excellent. So remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate the pace of your business growth. Subscribing to this podcast can be an excellent way to do that. That way, you'll make sure you don't miss any of our conversations with our top business experts like today's guest, Mark Roberge, who share their experience and expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us, and until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hi, this is Andy. I have a special offer for loyal listeners of Accelerate. It's a no-obligation, free trial of my zero-time selling interactive online training. 
Now, I've worked with thousands of sales reps to teach them how to use my zero-time selling to boost their productivity and transform the results. And so if you want to learn the same proven strategies to help you open more doors, have more effective sales conversations with prospects, and close more orders, then my zero-time selling interactive training system is a fit for you. It's incredibly simple to start. Just take out your smartphone and text the word TRUST, that's T-R-U-S-T, to 96000. Now, do you have your phone ready? Send a text to 96000. That's a nine and a six followed by three zeros. Now enter the single word message TRUST and hit send, and you hear right back from me with instructions on how to sign up for your free trial on my zero-time selling interactive training. I look forward to seeing you there.